0: Hi, my name is Catherine Basile, and welcome to Neuroethics Police. This episode is episode 13, and it's the final episode of season 1. Today I'm going to be listing the 12 neuroethics lessons from 12 neuroethics discussions, discussions that were held right here on the one and only Neuroethics Podcast, your favorite podcast, the Neuroethics Police. Additionally, we will be answering some questions from the audience that were sent via voice message. Now, as a side note, you can at any point do that as well. Join the discussion, voice your opinion by sending your voice message. And last but not least, on this episode, we will also be announcing the winner of our Instagram Neuroethics Meme Giveaway. The winner will receive the book *Homodeus* written by the best-selling author and historian Yuval Noah Harari, along with some of the cool Neuroethics Police merchandise. Now, if you are not the lucky winner, but are still curious about the book, I really recommend you buying it and reading it. It really covers a variety of topics that beg for questions about where are we going as a species, what will our future look like, and the reason we chose this book is because it is, first of all, um, uh, for obvious reasons, neuroethics related, and because the book also discusses emerging neurotechnologies and their uses, or how we as humans will choose to use these technologies. And it really has, I think, what what, what really I find most interesting, it really has a very peculiar, critical vision on things. And That's what we advocate for here, as you've noticed, to really stay curious, but most importantly, to stay critical about emerging technologies, but also about all of this bombardment of information of our modern age. Moving on, if you've always wanted to know the main takeaway messages from each and every episode, if you've been looking forward to have your question answered, or even very simply, if you are really curious to know Who was the lucky winner? Then stick around and trust me, you won't regret it. Welcome to the future of neuroethics. This is Neuroethics Police, a podcast where neuroethics will question the science. So grab a cup of coffee and join me, Catherine Basile, your host, as I guide provoking conversations with experts in the field about their insights on the ethics of neuroscience. Now let's get right into it. The 12 neuroethics lessons from 12 neuroethics discussions. Starting with lesson one, the future generation of scientists should receive training on neuroethics. During episode one, we had a conversation with Professor Jos Prickards about the relationship between neuroethics and neuroscience. Here's what Professor Prickards had to say about that. Have you personally ever received neuroethics or ethics-related training during your education or even in your academic career?
1: Well, I'm afraid I have to answer this question
2: with no. Okay. Never.
0: And 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 Yeah, except you- as
2: part
3: of the animal course?
0: No, no. But in terms of a course or some kind of training, as as no, an as no, upcoming no, scientist, no. no. And do you believe this is relevant or important, and well, why? Uh,
3: I
2: think it is very relevant now because yeah, we see it, uh, yeah, popping up almost everywhere. And I just told you I have a problem with the definition already. So then it's also difficult to yeah to deal with it. We have to deal with it. So it would be handy if uh, somebody uh, tells me a little bit more about it. And it would even be better if the new generation of researchers is better prepared for this and trained.
0: Lesson two. You do not need to be an expert to raise awareness on the ethical and societal implications of neuroscience. During episode two, I personally gave a short introduction on why I started the podcast in the first place, what pushed me as an early career neuroscientist and not neuroethicist to start a neuroethics podcast. So here's a short clip on why I started this podcast and why you can also raise awareness even if you are not a neuroethicist. But together with my guests, I would like to encourage discussion and dialogue related to neuroethics to shed light on some of the most important topics of our time, and to bring the public closer to science. Lesson 3. Increasing awareness to the public on current neurotechnologies can aid towards bridging gaps, preventing misconceptions, and false anxiety. During episode 3, we discussed together with Dr. Daniel Vandenhove about making use of biomarkers for diseases like aging and depression, here's what he said about developing these technologies, all while ensuring public trust in science.
2: Bringing this under people's attention that, that these developments uh, are ongoing, that that it might potentially lead to a situation like you just described. I think that's the first step Mm -hmm. and we have seen a few weeks ago that genetic editing is already being uh, applied, Uh, although in this case, uh, if I understood it correctly, without ethical approval from an ethics committee, but even independent uh, from this, uh, technically uh, the, the future is now so how can we prepare ourselves better? Well, if we, you have already seen that in reaction to this event, a lot of debates opened up, a lot of discussions about what is ethically correct, yes or no, uh, um, emerge from, from, from that, that genetic editing. And this is, I think, uh, crucially important. So we should raise attention and awareness of issues like these. Um, and that's what I think is about a very nice development about, uh, as you call it, neuroethics and you being representative of the neuroethics police, Mm -hmm. is that these used to be disciplines that were quite distant from each other. You had the science on one hand, and then you had to ask permission to an ethics committee whether you could do either your animal work or or your human experiments, and then uh, your proposal got granted yes or no. And I think um, that was a huge gap. Uh, And this gap is closing, Mm -hmm. Um, and and a scientist uh, on a daily basis becomes more aware of ethical constraints and concerns, and not uh, as being the enemy of one's research line, but being on board uh, on the same side uh, uh, there. So one has to create awareness, and and society can also judge or form their opinion about certain matters, and that can be implemented into uh, forming rules and regulations instead of uh, having this go silently, and then all of a sudden you might end up in a scenario where there's no way back.
0: Lesson four. The ethics of neuroscience is relevant because neuroscience is relevant. During episode 4, we had a conversation with Dr. Dorothy Horstkutter about the ethics of forensic psychology in juvenile delinquents. But what was most striking about this episode is a really thought-provoking statement that Dr. Dorothy made. Here's what she had to say about the importance of neuroethics.
4: The ethics of neuroscience is relevant because neuroscience is relevant and neuroscience is going to influence our our society more and more. Um, So ethical questions in that context are very important because they help us to shape society in a way that we continue to consider it desirable. In the end we want to live in a a good society Mm -hmm. and therefore we need an idea of what do we think that good is. What does it mean? What is a good application of whatever neuroscience finding? Mm-hmm. And that is not within neuroscience itself to define what does good mean.
0: Yeah, and maybe define the limits of how far we could go. with And certain also find the limits,
4: but also therefore to define the limits, you have to know in which kind of area you want yeah. to be.
0: Yeah.
4: And that is, that, that is, a, that is a task of ethicists and philosophers.
0: Yeah. Lesson five. Neuroethics discussions are discussions that should involve several stakeholders. During episode five, we had an open conversation together with other neuroscience PhD students about a variety of current neuroscience research, such as brains in a dish or brain organoids and human head transplants. And it became very clear throughout the conversation that closed discussions are no longer the answer. Now here's some highlights of this very interesting open discussion.
4: Yeah and I, I think on a more general scale what I'm, what I'm missing with most of these technological or scientific advancement is interdisciplinary discussions about the implications of these procedures with psychologists, with scientists, with uh, politicians with that some policies are being made, because this is not just um, science anymore. This, it, this it, I mean, has implications for society as a whole. And that's really something that I'm, that I'm missing.
5: I think head transplants will be extremely difficult. And there are a lot of ethical confounds. But if a single patient benefits mm-hmm. from a productive and successful head transplant, then all the medical confounds would be worth it in the end uh, the why to answer your old question is is to help people is to is to benefit people in a health wise and, and medically why
0: lesson six predicting increased risk for brain diseases goes hand in hand with increased moral responsibility during episode six We had a group discussion together with Dr. Matthew Bohm and Sophie Okolo about the neuroethics of biomarkers. Now Dr. Bohm really raised a very important notion about the detection of biomarkers for particular neurological disorders and their association with moral responsibility. Now let me simplify this and make it more easily understood. What does he mean? In other words, If you were to be tested for having a particular risk for certain brain diseases and your tests come out and show an increased risk for, for example, epilepsy. If you decide to get into your car and while driving, you get a seizure and accidentally kill someone. The question, the ethical question here is, are you held responsible for the accident knowing that you are at increased risk of having seizures. So this is indeed a very interesting and really a conversation that I believe is very underrated nowadays. Now, here's a small clip on that topic.
5: So there's this tense relationship between um, kind of ignorance about the probabilities of things happening that excuses. So, so if I were to, you know, drive, drive a car and all of a sudden have a seizure and my car were to injure someone and it was completely unprovoked, unpredictable, people, you know, would be like, whoa, you know, yeah. there's no way he could have picked this. He shouldn't be blamed for this. But the flip side is as soon as you have more predictive information, they say, ooh, you know, maybe you should have changed your behavior. Maybe if you were at risk of seizure, you shouldn't drive and that, that will decrease the, the risk of this. And if you drive and you know that risk and something happens, then maybe it's appropriate for the person who's impacted to, to blame you. And this gets really tricky when the research landscape, rather than having categories where people are at, at risk for seizure or not, starts to reveal that we all have <laughs> at any given time, you know non-zero probabilities of having a seizure while driving, and we can know this better. And then on top of that, uh, what we care about in that is not not having a seizure of driving, but but like losing control of a vehicle and having a crash. So if we roll in there, you know, having a heart attack, having a stroke, falling to sleep, like getting distracted, and, and roll that into like an all-cause uh, risk predictor for causing harm through driving a car, then it becomes really complicated.
6: This is a collaborative
4: message. The Italian Society of Neuroethics presents their 12th annual meeting, The Future of Neuroethics in Milan, between May 13 and 15, 2020. Calls for papers are now open and the prize of 500 euros for the best paper will be awarded at the meeting. For more information, check out our website at www.neuroethicspolice.com.
0: Lesson 7. A healthy relationship consists of a bit of neuroenthusiasm, not too much neuroskepticism and most importantly, a modest amount of of neurocentrism episode 7 was a discussion centered on neurolaw or the the neuroscience of law together with professor david roof and dr antonia walterman so it was very interesting for change to take the perspectives of non scientists but a lawyer and philosopher in training i think they really played a very essential role in giving us a wake-up call, a wake-up call to us scientists. And what does this wake-up call really consist of? It really is, as in, be careful how skeptical, but also how hyped you could be about introducing neuroscience to the courtroom. Now, here's a clip of what we discussed.
6: Beyond any doubt, the potential role of neuroscience different fields of our social life, including law, uh, is is of great uh, importance. Nevertheless, it stands to reason that because the brain is so central and necessary for human behavior and decision-making, there is also the constant allurement of thinking since the brain is necessary, it's also sufficient to Mm -hmm. understand what we are, and what we do, and uh, may give us the illusion that we may give description and explanation of human behavior solely by the neurosciences. Well, that's evidently not true. So we have to honor the neurosciences and their incredible intellectual achievements, but have to see that we don't fall into the trap of a kind of unwarranted neuromania or neuroenthusiasm. On the other hand, we should avoid an even more unwarranted neuroscepticism would like to keep neurosciences out of the courtroom. So I think the value of neurosciences is is very often in life in the middle ground.
0: Lesson eight. Scientists must come out of their bubble and be creative in communicating their science. Episode seven was followed by an episode with a completely fresh perspective. This time, it came from an artist. Saskia Valk was very supportive and really an advocate of the use of art as means of science communication, which, by the way, she does for a living. Now, here's what she said.
7: Scientists, of course, are highly educated people, but not everybody is a scientist. So the world, the people who actually are the platform where these uh, inventions are going to be uh, yeah, used, they are not all scientists. They are other people with other understandings and other needs, perhaps even. So it has to come out of the bubble, so to speak. Huh? It's the same like an artist should also come out of his bubble. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you only make art in your atelier, that's the same as being put in your laboratory and uh, have no idea about what's going on in the world, actually.
0: Lesson nine. Neuroethics is not about policing on neuroscience. Episode 9 was a good one. We discussed neurotechnologies, human rights, and regulations with Dr. Marcelo Ianka. And then Dr. Ianka said this.
1: Well, I think that maybe I would conclude by uh, stressing a few things that we mentioned throughout our conversation. But I think they they should really be emphasized because they are utmost important. So I I think it's important to highlight that neuroethics is not about policing on neuroscience, and probably this is this podcast is the best platform to make the statement since <laughs> the title of your podcast is the uh, neuroethics police, and you know. This is something that is, uh, I know that ethics is often perceived like this. It's perceived as a policeman that wants to tell scientists what they should do and what they should not, and uh, wants to blame scientists anytime they do something wrong. But as I mentioned before, I think this um, is part of what I've called the reactive approach to ethics of technology.
0: And we believe he is right. Big capital letters R-I-G-H-T. Right. And I know you must be saying, but wait a minute, isn't the title of this podcast, The Neuroethics Police? That is true. But if you dig deeper, and if you listen to the episodes, you will realize that it is the complete opposite of policing. And that's what I believe neuroethics is. Neuroethics is really looking between the lines, looking between the lines of neuroscience research and practices. And that's where the whole difference is being made. This is where neuroethics is trying to raise awareness on the implications of neuroscience. And this is where this podcast is doing the same, looking between the lines, looking where people normally don't look at. This is kind of police we are trying to be, if I could say that. Lesson 10. Journalists should not address their readers as ignorant and lazy. Episode 10, Andrea Lavazza discussed with us brain organoids and the ethical dilemmas of this technology. But he sure had something important to say when it came to the media to science communicators. And today we are turning this into a lesson, a very important lesson. So listen up.
4: So I tell them not to consider their readers uh, ignorant, lazy, and interested only in sensational headlines. But uh, journalists, science communicators in general, should try to showcase new scientific findings without hype or uh, without being uh, too simplistic. They have the duty to tell people what is going on in the lab with the The right uh, tone uh, with the necessary details uh, in order to give uh, a realistic information without, uh, as I said, hype or uh, simplistic uh, framework. They are very, very important uh, when they communicate and In general, people uh, tend to form their attitudes uh, based on uh, what they listen to or read uh, from uh, scientific communicators.
0: Lesson 11. We must never forget the patients. We must always keep open ears. During episode 11, we discussed together with Professor Dr. Yasin Temel, which is a neurosurgeon specialized or an expert in deep brain stimulation on the ethical implications of deep brain stimulation for disorders such as Parkinson's and depression and the associated personality changes that may arise as a side effect from making use of this technology as a treatment strategy.
3: Each individual, it's a personal balance. Your personality is everything. It's the most precious thing that you have. And if, if your personality would change, imagine you, you you also develop a disorder. You're shaking all the time. You're shaking, but you're also yourself. If your the burden of disease, if it's so huge, so substantial, that you say, I don't want to live anymore, then I think you take the risk a small risk in this case, to go to surgery and have it stopped. However, if you're with the same, with the same tremor, same shaking, a different patient would say, no, I'm shaking, but I'm okay. My, my, my life, my personality is everything. No, I can live with it. And that's something what we see in medicine from like, it's almost 20 years in medicine. and now what I see with a lot of things. On the MR, you see the same problem. But the experience is different.
0: It became very clear throughout our discussion that we should not forget what the patients think about those side effects, what the patients think about those ethical implications. We can sit here and argue about um, ethical implications of brain implants for this or for that purpose. But at the end of the day, what is okay for one patient might not be okay for the other and vice versa. And this is something we must not forget as a, as a community, as a scientific, as an ethical community, where we should always include the public, the patient, in our discussions about those ethical implications. Last but not least, The lesson that we've all been waiting for, the lesson that we deep down, really, we all know it, but we are afraid to say it out loud. But who did say it out loud? Our episode 12 guest, the philosopher Lorenz Landewert, he said...
7: You never know when science fiction becomes science fact. Uh, So in this regard, we should always be cautious in in calling out something as science fiction. But still, I would say that current assumptions over the possibility of mind-uploading, for example, are not only too far-fetched, it's not only the case that we are too early in some kind of technological development to, to actually predict when this will be possible, uh, I think that it is impossible by necessity due to the distinction between organics and mechanics. Uh, so that, that's one. Uh, that there are of course possibilities for lifespan extension that already exist, which include also focusing on healthier nutrition, also focuses on, on, on genetics. Uh, But there are, at at this moment, um, philosophers, ethicists, some scientists as well, who claim that they will achieve an age or a lifespan of about 150 to 200 years or even longer. I will not expect that this will happen.
0: And that was, ladies and gentlemen, the final lesson, lesson 12 of 12 neuroethics lessons from 12 neuroethics discussions. We never know when science fiction becomes science fact. And amen to that. There's nothing more we can add to what has been said. It really speaks loud for itself. So keep that in mind the next time you think of those emerging neurotechnologies or technologies in general. So there you go. Those were the 12 neuroethics lessons from 12 neuroethics discussions. Now, before moving on to announcing the winner of the giveaway, which I'm sure many of you have been holding on tight until now just to find out, but we received two questions from our audience that we would like to briefly respond to. First question was from Kennedy. Let's take a listen to his voice message.
8: Hello, Catherine. Thank you for raising awareness in neuroethics. My name is Kennedy de Paolo, and I'm currently studying a master's in neuromodulation at the University of Maastricht. I would briefly like to discuss findings published in 2008, covered by the medical journal Annals Neurology. Researchers unexpectedly observed improvement in certain memory functions while performing bilateral subthalamic deep brain stimulation to treat patients who were morbidly obese. Now, while these findings would be very in promising for patients suffering from diseases such as dementia, I can see this raising many ethical questions. One could ask, when does a treatment become an enhancement? Where do you draw the line and what should be the ethical regulations?
0: So this is a very, very valid point that Kennedy raised right here. When does treatment become enhancement? When do we draw the line? Or where do we draw the line between treatment and enhancement? And as Kennedy gave the example of, you know, treatment for obesity and having a cognitive enhancement as a side effect, I mean, this is this is something that, of course, I cannot a- have an answer to now. And I think this is really definitely one of the points on the agendas of neuroethics societies or neuroscience in general. I am a bit um careful in coming up with a very strong conclusion or with really taking sides here on whether i believe cognitive enhancement is much of a negative or is a route that we should not go towards i really want to be careful here because it has been it has come up to my attention that people like us that are really raising those concerns truly come from a cognitively privileged standpoint. And it is very important to keep in mind that what is considered cognitive enhancement to some is considered as maybe not treatment, but really a valuable addition to one's life. And I think this nicely ties also with the second question that we had, but I don't want to ruin it. But I think I am still very careful about making conclusions about the effects or whether we want or don't want as a society to include means and ways to enhance cognitive functions and abilities in our society. And I think this is definitely something that we definitely need to discuss. We need to uh, highlight, raise awareness on, and... It is very important to also keep in mind that normally, and this is maybe in response more to Kennedy's question, when we are talking about treatment, there is always the weighing of pros and cons, of weighing of the benefits and risks. And if a certain technology, or in this case, maybe deep brain stimulation for obesity or other uh, diseases, it is very important that... When we are making sure that we are, you know, curing or treating a certain disease, we cannot say, "Oh, that person or a subgroup of people are also going to, you know, benefit from this cognitive enhancement side effect." Then we should not practice this treatment anymore. I think this is also; it also has some ethical uh, implications, and this is in ways could be deemed or seen as unethical. So, I think. We have to first be careful about how we make conclusions about cognitive enhancement, at least nowadays, you know, really early on in this, in this discussion. But also, we should not forget that, you know, treatment is going to alleviate suffering or is going to really help people. And if it comes with, you know, other side effects, sometimes they are negative side effects and sometimes there are positive side effects. And I think it depends on how you see Cognitive enhancement, but we need to also make sure we are weighing the benefits and risks. I mean, this is definitely probably not a perfect answer to that question, but definitely this is something we should keep on thinking about. and I'm glad that Kennedy brought that up. Second question was from Jeremy DeLahanty, aka at Sciences Hard on Instagram. So let's take a closer listen to his voice message.
1: Hey, Neuroethics Police. My name is Jeremy Delahanty. You can find me at Science is Hard. And one question I had about essentially designing our future genetic selves is at what point are we running into us just trying to satisfy our own kind of vanity towards what we consider perfect? And how do we draw the line between when something is just seeking perfection for its own sake versus doing something actually useful and important that can really benefit our lives. Thanks for the podcast, and it's really awesome.
0: I think Jeremy also makes a very valid point, and it really, I really want to tie that very nicely with uh, Kennedy's question. And I already raised that point by saying we are coming from we are discussing this, raising those questions from a cognitively privileged standpoint. And this is something we should not forget. What can be considered as maybe cognitive enhancement or human enhancement for one person, it's probably going to be vanity, right? Increasing vanity in our lives. Because we are already coming from a cognitively privileged standpoint. But for others, this might also be considered as value for people that are suffering from cognitive impairments having those cognitive enhancement available to them those 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 tools or those technologies to lead to cognitive enhancement might be really an addition a valuable addition to their lives they are probably going to be able to you know go about their lives in a much better way without this impairment coming in the way, so I think there again, and I and I want to maybe make this into lesson thirteen for for this uh, season one, which I really want to thank uh, Kennedy and Jeremy for you know raising those points for us to be able to come up with lesson thirteen, and that is, it is very important to make sure whether you first come from a privileged standpoint when making ethical discussions or discussing the ethical implications of certain neuroscience research and especially when we're talking about cognitive enhancement many of us that are having those uh, discussions or raising those discussions do come from a cognitively privileged standpoint now that doesn't mean that we have no place at the table to discuss these but this does not mean we are the only ones that have the arguments or have you know the right to make such drastic conclusions that others with coming from a non-privileged point of view or non-privileged place that that they also have you know something to add and maybe even more so than we do so this is probably a nice ending to this season 1 and i want to thank everyone and especially Kennedy and Jeremy for really voicing their opinion and I hope this really inspires others other of you you know to really also do that it is it is very important that not only scientists and not only experts in the field join this discussion Uh, I think it's very important just like also this lesson 13 was able to highlight is that um, we have to also include people from the public. Uh, people from uh, other communities that we are not really exposed to as scientists and ethicists and philosophers. So um, I want to thank you very much for for really uh, setting an example for that. Now the time has come to announce the winner of the Neuroethics Meme Giveaway. We have to first take the moment to say that all the participants Really killed it with their quotes. We laughed at some, we scratched our heads at others, they were really thought provoking. So, thank you to all those who participated. But unfortunately, we were only able to choose one lucky winner. And I have to say it very transparently the selection was random because, I mean, without even having to explain it, it would have been impossible really otherwise to choose the best neuroethics meme. They were all, and I mean it, they were all epic. Okay, now without any further mumbling, the winner of the giveaway to celebrate the end of season one of the Neuroethics Police podcast is Chris. Chris from at Chris congratulations We will be contacting you on Instagram with more information on how to collect your prize. To the rest of our participants and to the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for participating. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you so much for making Season 1 successful, but also even possible. So much thanksness, so much gratefulness. We look forward to the next year. We look forward to Season 2 together with you, and especially now that our team has grew. We are a team of eight now, with amazing volunteers that are going to make sure that the standard and uh, quality of the podcast only increases with the coming seasons. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, but also even Spotify, or as a matter of fact, anywhere else. We are on several other podcast platforms. And by doing so, you will be sure you that you never miss an episode. But until then, stay curious, stay critical, until next year.